0: In the movie The Princess Bride. Great way to start a sermon, right? <laughs> One of the main characters, Vizzini, throughout the movie uses the word inconceivable to describe each and every situation that he encounters. It becomes rather humorous because not once does this character actually use that word correctly <laughs> in context. The word, uh, as you know, um, means impossible to imagine or envision. And at best, he uses it to describe situations that are just either highly improbable or just flat out unfortunate. So about halfway through the movie, um, he reaches this climax where basically he says once more in an unfortunate situation that it's inconceivable. And his counterpart, who's traveling with him, Nego Montoya looks to him and says, you keep using that word, and I do not believe that it means what you think it means. <laughs> and they have this moment where they puzzled, look comes across each of their faces, and they try to understand uh, the reality of the fact that he's been more or less using this kind of catchphrase throughout that had no real context. For some reason, that moment, Frames for me, Nicodemus and Jesus' interaction. Jesus talks to Nicodemus about belief, about what it means to be born again. And it's truly, actually inconceivable for <laughs> Nicodemus to understand that. And we see in this interaction with Nicodemus that this linchpin of what we understand as Christians to be born again um, is something that must be grasped to unlock the, the, the beauty of perhaps arguably the most well-known verse in all of scripture, John three sixteen, And yet if it's missed um, and we don't really understand what it means from Jesus' perspective as he's teaching it, then we kind of miss the totality of the Christian life that Jesus invites us into. So if you would, let's look back at John chapter three this morning um, and reflect on that and ask ourselves a few questions along the way. For our purposes to get context, um, to jog your memory, John's gospel is written from a different perspective than the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They are writing from a frame of some sort of account of Jesus' life to highlight either uh, Jesus' miraculous healings or his fulfillment, uh, in, in Matthew, right, of the law and the prophets. But John has no chronological care in the world about where he places things. His goal is to clearly point to Jesus' divinity, that Jesus is the Son of God, and every passage, every pericope that he pulls forward is toward that end. And there's often more than meets the eye than what um, is going on there in the symbolism that he pulls forth. And so hold that in mind as we get into what seem to be plain events in this passage that really probably have a more in-depth meaning from John's perspective So here we begin uh, in verse 1 where we see um, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. So he's one of the religious leaders. And not only that, but we read that he's a ruler of the Jews. So what John wants us to see is that not only is he a religious leader, but he's part of the Sanhedrin, which is the governing body of Israel. Now, for us as, as Americans, we don't see this conjoined. But remember, the governing body of Israel included the religious leaders who would interpret the law, um, and and receive cases, if you will, of matters of the law, so that they would apply to the civil and social structures of the day. So, by all intents, John's wanting us to see that um, Nicodemus is probably, by the world standards, one of the most prominent individuals that Jesus encounters, short of, say, uh, Pontius Pilate at his death. So he's he's a, he's kind of a big deal, at least from a Jewish perspective. And he comes to Jesus by night. Now, probably has less to do with the time of day. Again, from John's frame, night is probably more symbolic. And some the symbolism behind night usually signifies um, some sort of danger um, or some sort of kind of a precarious situation, um, which is probably true, as we see, of Nicodemus. Sadly, the case of Nicodemus seems to be framed in his opening interactions with Jesus along the lines that he kind of stays in this dangerous middle way. He doesn't really ever fully commit to Jesus. He's in this betwixt and between kind of period, if you will. He says, Rabbi, so he acknowledges Jesus as a teacher. We know, we, the people, he represents the people, know that you're, you're a teacher because we see the signs that you do. And no one can do those unless God is with them. And Nicodemus is trying to wrestle down who is Jesus in relation to everything he holds and understands. Now, we see that Nicodemus pops up only twice more in Scripture, and he still seems to be in this place between, unfortunately. Um, The next time we see him is in chapter 7 of John's Gospel. Remember coming off a major feast, uh, the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, once Jesus arrested. Um, but they do not arrest him for fear of the Jews. And in that case, when they're reporting back to the Sanhedrin and they're reading them the riot act as to why they didn't arrest Jesus, Nicodemus chimes in as one of their own and more or less says, doesn't our law say that we should kind of give everyone a fair hearing? And the response is a really harsh rebuttal back to Nicodemus, which says, so are you too deceived by this man? And there's no response from Nicodemus as to whether he believes in Jesus or whether he's standing with him. It's just kind of left hanging out there. And then we only see him once more at the end of John's gospel in chapter 19. Interestingly, in the betwixt, and the between of Jesus' death and resurrection, Nicodemus appears to bring burial spices, um, according to the law, for Jesus. And, And he's not, there's no interaction, there's nothing said, it's just he kind of pops up once more. He kind of stands as this reminder, um, really, that to follow Jesus can't be a a foot in two worlds. It's really either all in or not. Um, And that's why this reading is is so wonderfully tied with Genesis and the call of Abram who leaves everything. He is all in, right? He leaves his home and his land and Haran and he goes to this unknown place that God's called him. So as we reflect on that, I think there's a couple things for us to think about. Um, First, um, if we've not been fully committed to Jesus, or we've never made that commitment before, that obviously is is the first place to begin. But for those of you who have been um, baptized, who believe in Jesus, we're called to reflect on um, what terms and conditions do we apply to Jesus. What ways do we kind of, like Nicodemus, maybe kind of keep a foot in both worlds. Maybe it's the way that we want to manage our own calendar and days and have our own control at times, and touch in to Jesus on the DEFCON 5 moments where where we need help, but we've got it the rest of the time. Or maybe it's that we want belief, but we kind of from afar, like Nicodemus. uh, We're happy where we are, and we'll kind of be committed to an extent, but we're not really sure what that really means if we kind of dive headlong in in the way that Jesus asks. But as we go through Lent and we're reminded that the end of the Lenten story is John 3.16, the reason for which Jesus came, he gave his all for us and we're called to give our all to him in in belief and in action uh, in response. And in fact, Jesus, as we reflect on that, really doesn't give much option otherwise, does he? If we look back to verse 3, when Nicodemus is basically saying, well, we see that God's at work in you because of the things that you do, Jesus. Jesus says, well, the, the reason you're not understanding is because unless you're born again, you cannot really see what I'm doing. You're not part of my kingdom. You're not part of what I'm about. You might see the effects of it, but you're not really fully able to see what's happening. And so here's this kind of, you know, inconceivable moment for Nicodemus, right? Uh, Well, what does that mean? How can I be born again? Can I enter my mother's womb a second time and and be born again once more? Uh, That doesn't make any sense. And Jesus in verse 5 reiterates exactly what he said in verse 3 with one addition to answer his question, which is truly you cannot be part of the kingdom of God unless you are born by water and the Spirit. Jesus is talking about a different birth. does not mean what Nicodemus thinks it means. He's talking about being begotten or born from above. And one of the greatest preachers of all time, um, St. John Chrysostom, uh, said of this passage, which I think is worth pulling forward so marvelously, he said, and so what Christ says to him, Nicodemus, is something like this. If you're not born again, if you do not share in the Spirit that comes from the washing of regeneration, everything you think about me will be from a human point of view and not a spiritual one. You'll miss it. You'll miss it. And so, of course, this passage points to baptism. It points to where new life begins, As Colossians, as Paul will write, that we are new creation and and a new person in Christ Jesus. And, And it calls us to reflect on that moment and our baptism um... but what does that mean for those of us who have been baptized uh... one prominent new testament scholar uh, i think nailed this quite well unfortunately in the west we've placed so much emphasis on the moment of being born again that we've kind of missed what it's all about he uses this analogy he said sadly in the west um... it would be as though uh... we we framed our birth certificate very prominently and very elegantly we hang it in our house and then for everyone who walks in, we say, look, I was born. And folks look at you and say, well, that's wonderful. And, and what are you doing with your life now? What, what is the vitality of your life? What are, you, what are you about? Now, this is not in any way to downplay the, the event of baptism or new life in Christ Jesus. But if, if we only look at that as, as the moment, we miss the fact that when we're given a share of God's spirit, it should do something in us. It should animate us. In some way, um, and, and we were called to reflect on that. Um, so, I think one question for us to consider as we think about what what ways are we in or out from Jesus is what evidence does our life bear to the new life that we've been given in Christ Jesus, and what might that look like? So, in the early church, um, their concern was to live the life of a Christian, to walk in the way of Jesus all the time, because they're trying to reach the Jewish people in the early church, remember? And for the Jews, um, they could not believe the Messiah had come unless the world looked different. When the Messiah came, the world would look markedly different than it ever did. And so the early church, with that on one side and paganism on the other side, knew the only way that they could draw others into this new life in Christ Jesus was to live in a radically different way. And so they did. They uh, visited those imprisoned. They um, went to their death at violent ends. They took care of orphans and widows. They took care of the sick. They even took care of the pagan culture around them in such a way that it humiliated the government leaders at the time, who then, according to history, tried to emulate the very thing that Christians did because they felt so kind of uh, exposed by the fact that they weren't doing this for their people but they couldn't actually replicate it because they didn't have the Spirit of God. So one 19th century theologian put this quite simply and quite poignantly for our sake, Um, and I'll quote. He said, The most important and irreplaceable service Christians can render society is quite simply that they truly be church. They quite simply truly be church. So rather than trying to move the cultures around us to do the things that we think they should do, just do it. Adopt uh, the orphans, take care of the sick, bind up the brokenhearted. If the church does those things, we become the light on a hill, and we don't wait for others to do it, but we just do it ourselves. It animates our lives in a way that will transform everything. It has down throughout Christendom. And so the call for us is to reflect on what might God call us to do toward that end. We can't do it all, but we can do Something toward that end, and what might God be calling us individually and corporately to do as we consider that through this season of Lent? So, Jesus draws this distinction to a close back in verse six and following. First, by saying that which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of spirit is spirit. Talking to a religious leader, of course, he's noting that look, just because you're of the lineage of Abraham does not really mean anything. What we're talking about is inclusion into the household of God was by faith, even by Abraham, as the promise was, as we heard in Genesis, as Paul echoes in Romans, as we heard. And that's what matters. And so in verse 7, he says, don't marvel, don't be tripped up by this statement uh, to be born again, because the wind blows where it will. You can hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from and where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. This is where it gets really dangerous. This is the the night moment for Nicodemus, if you will. If Nicodemus, whose whole world and construct is framed by an application of 600 laws from Judaism, how they apply civilly, morally, and otherwise. Jesus is saying, and what I'm saying to you, is akin to opening a window in all of your categorized systems on a windy day and letting it just blow all through and reorder the whole thing. Because your framework will not work. Because the Spirit of God is not subject to your confines and your framework and your understanding. And that's where it gets dangerous for us too, isn't it? If we truly embrace what it means to be born again, a new life, yes, in a commitment to first follow Jesus, but then to allow the Spirit of God who lives in us to bring forth evidence of that end, then the question we have to ask ourselves continually is something along the lines of how open are we to the Holy Spirit? How open are we to the Spirit of God? And if you begin to pray that prayer, Lord, what would you have for me to do? Where would you have for me to be? That's dangerous. He'll reorder your day. He'll reorder your calendar. He'll reorder your cash. He'll reorder your call. He'll reorder your whole life because his aim is not that we lead lives that are nice and comfortable where we find great, nice moral principles in scripture, but towards the end, that he's bringing in a kingdom and you're a part of it. And if such, we live as citizens under a different kingdom while we're passing through the kingdoms of this age that we're a part of. And so we're called to reflect on that and ask ourselves, what place do we play and are we open to what the Spirit of God may want to do for us? Again, it's no coincidence that Paul puts all of this in a sense as a prelude to John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should have eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave his only son gave everything for us so that we might have an eternal kind of life now and throughout all eternity and so when we're born again we're not buying our time till that comes to pass it's already come to pass and you're walking in that every day the question is how do we bring ourselves fully body mind and spirit into that so that um, we come to terms with what Jesus has so that we bear evidence of the new life we've been given and so that we're open to what the Holy Spirit has for us. If we don't grasp that, then John 3.16 will truly be inconceivable to us as well. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.